We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Sedholm. And I'm your host, Jessica Sedholm. In today's episode, we look at the life of a British eye surgeon who managed to discover a practical solution for one of humanity's most prevalent diseases. And from a rather serendipitous source. This is the story of Dr. Harold Ridley. Episode 3, Canopy Lenses. Colonel Gordon Cleaver reporting for duty, sir. No time for pleasantries, Cleaver. We got word of Nazis headed over Winchester. I need to get some supplies. There's no time, dammit. 601 Squadron is already up there. Yes, sir. Good luck, son. Give them hell. All right, boys, I shop. If we survive Dunkirk, we can survive this. What's that? They're coming up behind me! Where are you now? BF-110 coming up at 12 o'clock. Mayday, mayday! I'm going down! Gordon Cleaver, my name is Dr. Harold Ridley. You've sustained injuries from your plane crash, and I'm here to tell you you've lost all your vision in the right eye and severely damaged your left. I'm sorry, son. Your flying career is over. Gordon Cleaver had so much trauma that he was lucky to keep the left eye in its socket altogether. His right eye, however, was obstructed by a different, relatively common problem called cataracts. Cataracts are in fact so common that they're the leading cause of blindness in the world to date. The condition consists of protein deposits that create a white clouding of the lens. Imagine you're driving a car, but you're looking through a dirty, frosted-over windshield. It doesn't matter that the car is working, or that the engine is running, or that you know how to drive. You can't go anywhere. That's basically what it's like to live with cataracts. Many things have been linked to increased rate of cataract formation. Smoking, diabetes, infection, steroids, radiation, but age is really the big one. 
Doctors have acknowledged the disease's existence and have tried for thousands of years to remedy it. Cataract extraction has its roots in a procedure called couching. The process involved cutting into the eye and pushing the lens into the back of the globe. To use our car analogy, couching is like taking that frosted windshield, and instead of replacing it, you're just breaking up the glass into shards and forcing it inside the car. This gave the patient the ability to walk around unassisted, but far from ideal vision. The first recorded use is debated. A depiction of what seems to be the first cataract surgery appears on a temple wall in ancient Egypt in 1200 BC. The first written description of couching was in an Indian text by the physician Sushruta, 600 years later. This method prevailed for nearly 2,000 years until 1750. Slow advancements were made in surgical approach and addition of anesthesia, to name a few. But even with these advancements, a major problem remained. When the lens was removed, the focusing power of the eye remained significantly diminished. The only solution to this problem were cumbersome, clunky spectacles. Ophthalmologists into the 20th century still had no ideal solution. So when our pilot, Gordon Cleaver, landed in Moorfield Hospital in London, he was just one of many going blind from cataracts. It was there he was treated by Dr. Harold Ridley, an ophthalmologist at the time who saw many soldiers healing from the aftermath of World War II. One day, when Dr. Ridley was working, a medical student had been observing him during surgery. Following the operation, the med student inquired as to why the removed lens was not replaced with any other material. Dr. Ridley simply responded that the standard procedure is to remove the cataract without replacing it, for there is no such device that could do the job of the lens. As with all transplanted material into live tissues, any foreign body placed into the eye should elicit an inflammatory response that can cause more damage to the eye. But the question the medical student posed definitely piqued Dr. Ridley's interest. He began to notice that many of the Royal Air Force pilots had debris permanently lodged in their eye from pieces of canopy from the airplane cockpit that had been disintegrated during plane crashes. The interesting thing about this material was that it didn't induce any damage or inflammatory response as was expected from the human body. These survivors had shards of plastic that had been left untouched for years after the war. This led Dr. Ridley to wonder, if there was to be an artificial lens created, could it be made out of the same material as the canopy of airplanes? The material in question was later determined to be polymethyl methacrylate acrylic, which is basically just a type of acrylic plastic. It was sold under the trade name Perspex, and was ideal for artificial lenses because of its optical properties and overall inertness. Thus began his pursuit to create the first ever artificial intraocular lens implant, or what we call today IOLs. With the monumental challenge that lay ahead of him, he eloquently defined three hurdles to overcome in order to perfect his vision. First, he needed a material that would be safe to implant into the eye. That problem had already been solved with his discovery of perspex. The second was the shape of the lens. It needed to be molded in such a way that it kept the focusing power of a natural lens while also fitting within the snug chamber in the eye. 
Surprisingly, his carefully replicated lens caused nearsightedness in the first couple of prototypes, even though they were nearly identical to anatomic specimens. He eventually discovered the optimal shape after tweaking the design a few times. The final obstacle was the positioning and stabilization within the eye. Although he worked at it, he was unsuccessful. It would take decades and a different set of people to find the solution. Dr. Ridley owed much of his success in those early days to the expertise of the Rayner Company, an optician shop specializing in ocular instrumentation. With that team on board, he set to work. He was keenly aware that for this to be a success, the artificial lens would need to be perfected, in secret, to avoid other researchers butting in. Starting in 1947, the project turned in silence. And on November 29, 1949, a mere two years after he began development, the first successful intraocular lens implantation was performed by Ridley himself on a woman with unilateral cataracts. It was actually removed shortly after, because Ridley was concerned that the implant was unstable, but he re-implanted later, in early 1950. He had achieved what even he thought was impossible only a few years earlier. He had, by all accounts, fixed a problem that had plagued doctors for centuries. And as wind of the procedure began to creep around hospital wards, he feared someone would steal his invention. So he hastened to publish his findings, and eventually did, in a small journal, St. Thomas's Hospital Report, a little bit earlier than he would have preferred. When he finally revealed the success of the first transplant at the Oxford Ophthalmological Conference in July 1951, he was met with a mix of ebullience and trepidation by some of the most recognized ophthalmologists in his circle. Many doctors were worried about the long-term consequences of keeping an object in such a delicate structure, stating that it was, quote, a ticking time bomb. The quality of his research was, as it would be today, heavily criticized since he lacked efficacy and longevity data and had nearly no patients in his cohort. Due to his fear of idea stealing, he lacked the time to carry out these long-term follow-ups. One of his most ardent foes was Sir Stuart Duke Elder, surgeon oculist to the Queen. As Ridley stated about the Oxford Conference, Sir Stuart Duke Elder and others repeatedly refused even to look at my demonstration patients. Dr. Duke Elder and other prominent surgeons sought to find the negatives in the operation and even threatened those who jumped on the bandwagon by denying them promotions in the hospital. Then came the complication of greedy manufacturers wanting to make a quick buck. They poorly studied the initial implants and made crudely manufactured IOLs, and inexperienced surgeons placed them, causing significant adverse effects like blindness and infection. All this further validated the negative view many had of this revolutionary technology. This black cloud hung over Ridley throughout the rest of his career, and at times, threatened his physical and emotional health. For the intense criticism he received, he suffered from anxiety and depression. The pain and shame lasted for decades. But eventually, 
With time and growing awareness of its safety, his invention was deemed effective and definitely preferred over the alternative. It took over three decades before the procedure was approved by the Food and Drug Administration, stateside, in 1981. Between the 1980s and the eve of the 21st century, its acceptance was exponential. The procedure set the ophthalmological world on fire. Today, IOL implantations are the most commonly performed surgery by ophthalmologists around the world. It's incredibly safe and can be done in as little as 10 minutes. I think it's that time, Jesse. Uh-oh. It's time to learn the science behind some of our favorite stories. Off to the Synaptic Center. It's difficult to talk about artificial lenses without talking about how the human lens works and focuses light to begin with. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that a structure as small as the eye is so important yet so complicated. I mean, ophthalmology today has seven subspecialties. Yeah, let me see if I can get all of them. Uh, It's cornea, glaucoma, retina, uh, oculoplastics, uh, pediatrics, neuro-ophthalmology, and uh, uveitis, inflammation of the eye. So how does your eye look at something and register an image? Well, first you have to understand the basic anatomy of the eye. What always helped me in undergrad was thinking about the eyeball as a camera. It works in essentially the same way. Light first hits the cornea, which is a thin, clear portion that rests on the very front of the eye, and that cornea is responsible for two-thirds of the focusing power. The rest of the focusing power, that one-third, is performed by the lens, which is the star of our episode today. The lens functions much like the lens of a camera, but in our eye, it's ideally situated so that when light rays converge to the back of the eye, they fall directly onto the retina. So in non-ideal situations, light doesn't land exactly at that sweet spot. If you're nearsighted, the light rays converge too early or before they hit the retina, hence the term myopia. If you're farsighted, the light rays converge too far or behind the retina, hence the term hyperopia. This can be corrected easily by creating an artificial lens that sits in front of the eye that either converges or diverges light And that's how people end up in contacts or glasses. Meanwhile, there's also the pupil, that small black dot that dilates in the dark to let more light in and constricts in bright light. Or when you're on cocaine. Yes, or when you're on cocaine. We can and will address that in a different episode. We betcha. You can think of the pupil as the aperture of a camera. And so all this, the lens, the cornea, the pupil, work in the front of the eye called the anterior segment for one reason, to get that image onto the retina. The retina is basically this super thin wallpaper of photoreceptors that lines the back of the eye. And it's how we see. To stick to our camera metaphor, it's like the film of the camera. The center of the retina is called the fovea. And in that center is an intense concentration of cones, which serve as color photoreceptors. It is such a small portion of the overall retina, but this portion gives you the ability to read the eye chart, to see distinct colors, or to make out features on a face. The rest of the retina is made up of rods, which give us more of our low vision, like black and white. They are more sensitive to the dark, but don't contribute as much to our color vision. This is why colors appear dimmer at night. Together, 
these rods and cones, are photoreceptors that send information to the brain through a bundle of nerves collectively called the optic nerve. And that's the cable that connects the eye to the brain. Finally, the optic nerve transmits information to the optic chiasm in the brain, which does a quick crossover episode and basically switches hemispheres before landing right where it's meant to be, the occipital lobe. There, the image, which started off in the retina as both real and inverted, is flipped turned upside down, like the Fresh Prince. And there you have it. An image is formed. The picture you see at the end. Imagine how extraordinary it is to think this is happening all the time. Even right now. All those parts are working in unison to create sight. Insane. Dr. Ridley's story is one of triumph and, at times, tragedy. His resilience and vision are enviable and serves as a lesson to all about staying focused against all odds. Fortunately, the brilliant Dr. Ridley was lucky enough to emerge as the hero in his lifetime. For his remarkable achievements, he was actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in February of the year 2000 undoing much of the slander he had received in the early days of the artificial lens development. Even better, he underwent bilateral ocular lens implantation in the same exact hospital in which he had performed the surgery decades prior, a fact that gave him great joy. Many people around the world may not know the story of Dr. Harold Ridley, but they owe one of the most essential functions, sight, to his persistence and his dedication. And we cannot forget how those debris-speckled eyes of those Royal Air Force pilots became a gateway to a medical revolution. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medicalization. Please make sure to follow us on iTunes and or SoundCloud and give us a review. You don't have to give us a review. But sharing with your friends and writing a review is the best way to help us out. Tune in next time for another look into the medical history vault with Jessica and Wapi Keno. (laughs) (laughs) We'd like to thank our sponsors, our parents, and uh, the guy off Craigslist who we bought this mic from. We'd like to thank Nate Ziley for his role as Gordon Cleaver, a.k.a. Mouse. And we'd also like to thank Alex Merson for his role as Dr. Harold Ridley. Please stay tuned for our uh, supplemental episode, which you can find already posted. It is an interview with Dr. Kenneth Hovland. He is an ophthalmologist at the University of Colorado, now retired, who... um, gave us a lot of valuable information about the history of cataract surgery as well as Dr. Ridley's amazing story. So check it out. Sir Stuart Duke Elder and others repeatedly refuse to even look at my demonstration patients. I, I, for sure. I guarantee it. Yeah. I meta- don't like the way you listen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's, that's enough of this. <laughs> Now, back to our show.